The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Right, I'm joined today by someone a lot of you have probably heard from, and if I'm going to be honest, I've been a fan of yours for a long time and didn't realize uh, that it was you that I was a fan of, uh, Laura Beal, who is the host of the new hit podcast, Sympathy Pains, who was also the reporter and host of the podcast, Dr. Death, and uh, The Vaping Fix. Uh, you've probably heard uh, her voice before on the, on the podcast waves. Uh, thank you, Laura, so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So first of all, tell us a little bit about your because you're you're in a an interesting kind of niche field. Are you're consi- are you considered a medical journalist? Is that yeah. you, so? You're a journalist, but primarily only focusing in medical stuff. Yes. So I I've been a medical journalist uh, since um, I started in the early '90s. So I've been mm-hmm. around a while, and I worked in newspapers most of my career. Uh, newspapers in Louisiana, and then mostly at the Dallas Morning News, Dallas, where I live. And I wrote about medicine. I have a background in science and um, science and medical issues. And that's all I've ever done. It's all I ever wanted to do. And so I worked at the Morning News. I quit um, in, uh, golly, was it 2008? Not sure now. And uh, started freelancing, wrote mostly magazine features uh, during Mm -hmm. that time. And uh, and I was happily a magazine feature writer, and then I got a call from a company I had never heard of before called Wondery, and they uh-huh. asked me if I would be, and they were new then too. I think at the time that they called me, I think everything, all their expenses were still going on the CEO's credit card. I mean, right? How yeah. new it was. And uh, not sure about that, but you know, it was um, so. Uh, so asked me if I would be interested in in reporting a um, a story and doing a podcast about a surgeon here in Dallas uh, who had gotten the nickname Doctor Death. So, as you can guess from the name, he wasn't a good surgeon. And, right. <laughs> uh, and they asked if I would be interested in in writing and reporting that, and I said, "Well, maybe." But I've I I'm a print journalist and. Um, they said that's fine. We can, you know, we can help you with the audio and learn the audio and audio storytelling. And so, Doctor Death uh, came out in two thousand eighteen, I think. And then, uh, and at the time it came out, I was hoping that um, someone would listen to it who I was not directly related to. And uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and it came out, and people did listen. I think it really resonated with people for for a lot of reasons. One is just like, how could this happen? Which was essentially uh, what the podcast was about. Was It wasn't a whodunit true crime, because we already knew that right. it was really kind of a like a forensic look at the healthcare system. And to me, I've always said, and I believe this, that the story was not about this surgeon. It was about the healthcare system. That, that, was, yeah. the, that was the villain here, really. I mean, on top of obviously... Christopher Dunch is the one most responsible for what happened. 
Um, and then from there, I just, uh, that was, uh, you know, big hit. I think last I heard it was like 50 million, 60 million downloads, something like that. And so I went on to do other podcasts uh, about the stem cell industry, about uh, about uh, Juul, the vaping, you know, the vaping company, and most recently, Sympathy Pains. Probably a long answer to the, your question, but that covers it. <laughs> no, it's great. It's it, it's amazing to me. That, yeah, so you definitely got more than just your your close family listening with the fifty million downloads. Uh, the, and I, I was I was way into Doctor Death, and then of course, while well, it was later adapted into a TV series. Um, it, it, what an incredible, and, and the takeaway I got was exactly what you intended, which was like, how the heck does this, how did this guy keep, continue to slip through the cracks? How did he continue to be protected and continue to be able to operate? It was, you know, it, it was scary. It was a scary look at the medical field. How, how did you, so you, you all the way from back in the nineties, you were a medical journalist. So did you, did you go to school for journalism? Did you go to school for medicine or both? Or like, how did you l land in that kind of niche? Well, I've always been interested in science, medicine, or some, some kind of field. I, and so in college, I was actually, um, I played around a little bit. I knew I wanted some kind of scientific field, eventually settled on pre-med. So I mm -hmm. wanted to go to medical school and, uh, and, but I also loved writing so as a as a backup, I also applied to go to uh, graduate school to study journalism. And uh, the the short story is, I ended up accepted into both medical school and to journalism program. And so my senior year, which is, uh, I always tell kids, you know, you don't, there's no. I have two kids of my own. You know, don't feel pressured to like have your life completely planned out as soon as you finish high school. Because I changed my mind my senior year of college. And decided that um, you know journalism would be more fun, <laughs> right? I, yeah, I I I still love medicine. I still am around it. I still love reading about it. It's it's um, but I I I'm really happy that I I chose the path I did. I just decided I wanted to 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 write about it. So I I, I I've described myself for as kind of a beachcomber uh, when it uh -huh. comes to. When it comes to, uh, to to medicine, the the doctors and the people out in the field are the ones kind of swimming up, you know, swimming out there in the ocean, and I'm just seeing what washes up and looks interesting. Yeah, the, and and your reporting is incredible. Did you find was it easier? Was it kind of a breath of fresh air to convert from print writing to writing for audio? I mean, you it's a very different different way to write. It is a different way to write, um, and I I was happy to to try it. I mean, I I, I do you know at at as, as you can guess from my background, I've been doing this a long time, and and uh, it was it was kind of nice at that stage in my career to to try something completely different, and I and I have I have enjoyed it. There's I I, I want to say you know probably haven't totally nailed it. I'm still learning. If you ask my producers, I'm definitely still learning. <laughs> but um, uh, but uh, but I, I I do like it, but I still do print stories as well. I still consider myself a print journalist. But but you're right. I mean, it's a completely different way to to tell a story. I like it because I'm a journalist, and and it, it, you know, it's it's no secret kind of what's happening to the newspapers, which is my first love. But they're you know shrinking, and I. I still believe in local newspapers and local journalism, and and that's where my heart lies. But 
and and with magazines but but if you want if you want to really sink your teeth into a story and you're a freelancer like me podcasting really lets you do that because it's the one area of journalism that is expanding and it will also mm-hmm. you know these long investigative projects are they're expensive they're expensive right. to do i think they're important to do but they they take a lot of resources to to do it takes me you know almost a year or more to work on a story and during that time i have to you know feed my children and and right. and make a salary and and there's travel and there's all kinds of expenses and and the reality is that that podcasting is one area that you know can still afford to do that if you're not on staff somewhere and even the staff positions are finding it hard to do that i think yeah, and, and it's you've made a great transition. So Dr. Death, I think most people have listened to, was amazing. You did Bad Batch, which is another six-part investigative series about um, a medical case. Uh, and then The Vaping Fix, uh, which – and that's I, I want to chat with you a little bit about that because I've, I've always been really curious about – and I haven't had a chance to listen to The Vaping Fix yet. One of the, one of the downfalls of me doing this show is – I have to listen to other true crime podcasts every single week, so it's hard to find time to just listen. And to the something. vaping fix is not true crime, so right, right, yeah. So that that, but but I've always I want it's been on my list, and I've been wanting to listen to it because. Um, so I was someone who smoked for a long time, and then used electronic cigarettes to quit after nothing else worked, and was like surrounded by people around me that all did the same thing. And I mean, yep. I can name two dozen people that quit smoking with the use of electronic cigarettes and then all of a sudden they were like really demonized and there was you know like i think you know i think trump even like did an executive order like banning flavored uh flavored you know trying to protect our kids and stuff and i was what i was always you know i what was always interesting about it to me and i'm curious somebody that has the medical background and did like a deep dive into it is were there studies that it was you know obviously now i have two teenagers and i know it's a problem and i don't want them getting mixed up with any kind of nicotine addiction, vaping or anything else. Uh, Cause that's when I got hooked myself. But w- when the executive orders came out to like ban the electronic cigarette juices that had flavors in them or whatever, my first thought was, I can't see the scientific evidence saying this is so bad. And definitely we know cigarettes are killing people and no one's talking about banning those. Like why, why are we ignoring Big tobacco. Well, you nailed the complexity of it right there. Uh-huh. So, uh, so, so one thing I'm proud of with the vaping fix is that um, it was a hard story because you know we all want villains, right? We all want right. you know somebody to be the bad guy in this, and and we you know the the narrative that these guys who invented Jewel had some you know secret plot to hook teenagers you know and and create a vaping empire um that that sounds great but the truth is it's it's a very complex story and and harm reduction which you experienced Mm -hmm. is a is a hard concept for people and so so telling that story i i really set out i set out with an open mind you know i I, all i knew was what i had read that you know jewel is bad and a lot of teenagers are doing it Mm -hmm. which of course is is terrible for the reasons you mentioned we don't want a new generation hooked on nicotine um but as i got into it more i mean i uh, one thing i mentioned is you know my mother-in-law uh was a two pack a day smoker 
And, uh, and, and she started in 1960 when everyone was, you know, smoking and she was in college and she mm-hmm. smoked her whole life. Um, and when I started, it struck me when I started working, working on, uh, this podcast about Jewel, I, the research showed the same thing that you found. It's, it's compared to cigarettes, it's definitely less, less harmful and it's right. better for you, even if you don't quit, even if you, and they don't make claims to be a cessation device, you know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a definitely a harm reduction device. But I, I asked her, you know, would you want to try one of these things? And she's like, oh no, I, I've heard those are dangerous. You know, as she's like, right. you know, stepping outside to, to light up her 10th cigarette of the day. So, yeah. so definitely that there was a message there that it was, it was bad, but it depends on the context. And so exploring that story was was it was really complex because there are two realities here mm-hmm. one is that it's terrible for teenagers to do these things and jewel did uh you know they made mistakes and they hooked a bunch of teenagers and uh but it's also true that this product could have been uh a, a real godsend to people who who are longtime smokers can't quit because nicotine you've quit nicotine it's really really mm-hmm. difficult uh, yeah can't quit like my mother-in-law she was never going to quit and uh and needed an alternative and so how to balance those two competing needs and how to tell a story that balances those two competing needs uh was 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 hard and i i told my producers when we were making this i'm like everybody's gonna hate me when this is done because both sides, <laughs> both sides, because, you yeah. know, the people who, you know, the jewel is evil people are going to be upset because I didn't come out and say jewel is evil. And the people who said, you know, vaping is, is a godsend to smokers uh, are going to, are not going to like me because there were some problems with the way jewel handled their marketing and hooked teenagers. But at the end of the day, my, my loyalty is to the public and the integrity of the story. But so as a former smoker, you might be interested, but there's there were no clear, you know, there there was no clear villain here. I I don't yeah. think, and that 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 made a lot of people unhappy. I think. Yeah, and, and it's I'm definitely going to give it a listen because it's a super complex situation. So because you know, I when I I used it to quit smoking and and was able to quit immediately, like I was done, and then the electronic cigarette. It wasn't a jewel, but it was another device that. That like it, it took care of that sensation and I was okay. I never smoked another cigarette ever again after that. But then quitting the the vape, that was tough too because they were still pumping all that nicotine in you. And I definitely wanted to quit that. Too. I felt like even though I couldn't find any evidence that showed really that it was for sure doing me harm, it still just I didn't like the idea of of still putting something into my lungs all the time. So I, I eventually did quit. But then. What got me? Did you get into it all in the in the podcast? Like the probably not, but like what was going on with our government? Because that was I was done with vaping oh, all did. that I by the time to, this came yeah, out. Yeah, no, did you? I, I uh, the head of the office of tobacco products at the FDA did uh-huh. an interview with me, so you would be interested yeah. to hear what he had to say. Oh yeah, I'm sorry because that was, was I thought it was really actually in, interesting, and 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 his parents were lifelong smokers, so I think that uh-huh. he. Mitch Zeller, I, I think he did. I, I got a sense from him of the true appreciation for the need for 
for harm reduction in right. tobacco. And that's not just, you know, electronic cigarettes. I mean, that's also, it, it, we're completely down the rabbit hole here, but it's in the podcast <laughs> is if you can reduce, you know, they've long wanted to reduce the amount of nicotine in cigarettes and the FDA mm-hmm. can do that now. But the the issue is, if you suddenly say cigarettes can only have like X amount of nicotine, there are millions of people addicted to higher amounts. And so you've got to give them some kind of alternative for that, or you're going to have, you know, you're going to create even more problems for people who are addicted yeah. to high levels of, of nicotine. And so again, it's, it's not an easy question, but I, I, yeah, I, I did actually uh, talk to the FDA and they, they had, you know, they had high hopes for products like Juul uh, and, uh, being an answer to help with harm reduction. And then the data came out about all the kids who were addicted and it just blew up the whole thing. Right. Yeah. And that was, and you know, and I, and I definitely see that again, having two teenagers, I see them, their friends, you know, I, I know what's go, what's going on and, and try to curb that. But then I think back to when I was in high school, it's like, it was the same thing. It was just, when I was in high school, it was cigarettes and chewing tobacco. And yeah. now it's vapes and jewels and everything. But to me, it was the biggest eye opener for me when that the whole executive order thing came through was how deeply is big tobacco in the government pockets if we've made this huge deal about banning this product when there's another product that there's so much empirical data that is killing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people a year and nobody's talking about banning that mm-hmm. and you can go to the store and buy grape and strawberry flavored cigarellos and all this stuff, but all that stuff's fine. But the, it was, it just seemed to me like, okay, somebody's pushing this I, agenda. I think it, I, I think it was, um, and I, I can't, I, you know, I don't know exactly what was going on in, in anyone's head at the government with that flavor ban, but I think a lot of it is that also remember what's going on here is you have a generation of parents. So, so vaping Let's look at the demographics that it's affect. I mean, a lot of it are it's kids with money because these are expensive. These jewels are expensive, yeah. right? So it's you know you're talking about upper middle class kids mm-hmm. whose parents do not smoke and have never smoked, and right. and were horrified to see their kids, which you would be to see their kids mm-hmm. addicted to nicotine, and and I think a lot that we're pushing for. You know, these bands, because they didn't, I mean, let's face it, there's no sympathy for the plight of smokers, really. Right. You know, in this country, I mean, smokers, I was, and this is evidence I I was struck by during the, I was working on this, you know, and the pandemic came out and the, the vaccine when the first uh, coronavirus vaccines came out and I, one state, I can't remember which, it was what said, well, we'll prioritize smokers because they're at risk, you know, higher risk if they get the coronavirus infection. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge backlash against that, which was, I'm summing up here, but it was like, let them die. They're smokers. We don't, you know, they're doing it to themselves. And, you know, smoking is really hard to quit. I mean, it's really hard to quit. You you know that. Nicotine is hugely addictive. And uh, so, so I think part of what was driving this is you had parents who who were rightly horrified that their kids were addicted, uh, wanting these things off the market. Uh, but there's, you know, in terms of the harm reduction smoker lobby is not very 
um, not n- n- doesn't have as much of an influence. I I don't think that that's my opinion. But but again, all 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 topics I tried to explore in in vaping fix. Well, that's great, and 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 we see the balance that you've had in in your other projects that you've done, and and I want to get I don't know let everybody listen to me ramble on about vaping for this, this whole time. So we'll, we'll move on from it, but it was just one of those things that's fascinating to me and not because of what it was about, but like the broader implications of what all of that meant. Um, but well, I, want, you I was just definitely listen to it. Cause it's, it's uh, it, it was, it was hard to tell because it is, it is a very, very complex subject and um, it's, it's a very complex subject. And, and I think a lot of people wanted, wanted it, want the topic to be a lot more straightforward uh than it is but but it isn't and and there's no like um you know that there's no hard villains really here there's yeah. a lot of people who made a lot of mistakes when it comes to jewel uh, for for the reasons i talked about they they just you know didn't consider in my view i don't think they they intended to hook these you know these these kids but they did because mm-hmm. They, you know, that's what happens when you market your your new device as the latest fancy tech product, which they were in Silicon right. Valley. You would do that, but who's the consumer of the latest fancy tech? It's kids, right? Yeah, and I have I'm traveling this weekend, so I'm going to have a that that's going to be my vacation listening is to check that out. Well, you can let me know what you think. Yeah, <laughs> I'll definitely do have. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably well. I mean, I like your style of reporting because it is very balanced and it's very. There's no agenda behind it, and that's um, it's refreshing because you don't get like it's hard to find news. Like like true journalism, I think is really going by the wayside. It's so hard to whether you're talking about cable news, about politics, or just everybody seems to always have an agenda somewhere. Um, so be but there really are a lot of places that do. I mean, I will defend journalists and journalism all, all day long. I've never met a journalist who didn't want a, a true journalist who didn't want to get it right. And right. Uh, but obviously some news outlets do that better, uh, uh, better than others. Uh, but I always try to approach everything, uh, everything with, with an open mind, because one of the I'd say one of the mistakes I do see even good journalists make, and the jewel is an example of that, is mm-hmm. uh, you can have, you know, you're too, you have the story in your head, what you think the story is. And I think even subconsciously, you can just see those, those particular facts uh, that support your narrative. I don't even know if it's intentional, uh, but, mm-hmm. but you can, you, you know, so you always ask yourself, well, what's an alternative explanation for this what's you know what's the other you know what's what's the other side now there's certain things there's certain topics that don't you know that don't, don't have, have another an, side have <laughs> another side like you know like uh, i think climate change is a good example there's there's not yeah. there's there's not an either or here you know this is something that's happening and so so i it's again there's a complexity here but i i always try to you know to treat everyone fairly and i think you know sympathy pains was was also that kind of balance because um, how to tell a story of someone who hurt a lot of people and hold her to account, but also mm-hmm. take in, you know, but you also have to consider the fact that she also had mental health needs uh, that were that were unmet. And, and I didn't want her to be, you know, again, to be a two-dimensional 
villain in the same way I didn't right. want Jewel to, to, to be. I mean, there she she was a person, she had needs, but she hurt a lot of people. So I, I don't want to make excuses for what she did and the pain she caused. But we also have to consider her uh, as well. That's always a complex question. Another podcaster friend of mine, Josh Hallmark, does the True Crime Bullshit podcast about Israel Keys. We've had this conversation a few times. It's like if if someone's in that, like in those cases, like if someone is truly a psychopath, and we say that's something that they're that that sociopathy or whatever is something that they're born with. Like, is there a sympathy there? Like, can they not if they if they are really in a position where they and it's. And and it's a five hour conversation with no answer to it, but it's it's a it's an interesting question, and that sympathy pains. The story here is uh, definitely toes that line. First, before we get into the case, what is how did this story come to you? Does is this a story you were working on, or did Wondery bring the story to you? Well, it wasn't Wondery; it was iHeart. It was, it was oh, this okay. one was uh, it was not. It was the first podcast I did that was not Wondery, uh, and I worked with a team at Neon Hum Media, and they were mm-hmm. they were great. They were really great. First. Non Wondery production team I've I've worked with and, and, and so I, this is produced all by, by iHeart and distributed by iHeart. It's distributed by iHeart, but the yep. the producers came from Neon Hum Media. Okay, and Great. Uh, and and um, uh, so I had met uh the t- two of the women involved, Bethany and Liz, and talked to them and uh, about telling the the story. And of course, you know when you, they start telling me this and. And so many times you go, and then what? You know, and then uh-huh. and then you know, and then you get to Doctor Phil, and you're like, this is you know unbelievable. And so, uh, and so it was just something I wanted to to take to take on for for a lot of different a lot of different reasons. And um, you know, one, it was just a good story to tell, uh, mm-hmm. but I did think it raised a lot of a lot of these larger issues. And you know, and in the end, I come down to you know, it says a lot about quote unquote victimless crimes. Well, you know, we mm-hmm. see, which is just, you know, people treating one another with, with no empathy and, 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 and the destruction that that can cause, even if you're not taking something physically from someone, or even if you're not hurting them physically, which the law says makes things against, you know, which makes things against the law, but, but there's still a definite cost uh, to that. Yeah. And in this case, you also have the idea that um, Sarah Delishmit, who's the, the 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 headline is that she's a con woman who faked illnesses to swindle sympathy from her friends and charity organizations for years. So it's it's like the other side of it too. Like she used the empathy that was there to profit from it. She did, um, but and not profit I'll, I'll, monetarily. Like money was not her was not her goal, which also made the case kind of different from other cons because uh-huh. usually when you think, well, I'm conning someone. You know, it's out of money or for power or control or something like that. But she she didn't want money. Uh, she just she she needed something else. Yeah. So I'll let you kind of break down the the beats of the case with because I don't, I don't know how much you want to share and give away before people listen to the whole podcast. So I'll let you kind of take the wheel here and tell Ooh, us a little bit tough. about this story. So yeah. So I don't know if we want uh, spoilers for people who haven't uh, listened to it. So I'll try to walk a line but she she uh so the center of the case it focuses on sarah delashment who lived in illinois she was a former nurse which i found out is not uncommon for cases like this of people faking Mm -hmm. she uh and so for 
a long, long period of time, like 20 years, she she faked different illnesses in different settings, and she was really good at it. I mean, she could, you know, she went to a camp for people with disabilities and and fooled the camp counselors, you know, who are, you know, used to dealing with, with people who are, you know, have different, who have different abilities, and she she fooled them. They never suspected. So she was quite good at uh, at, at faking these illnesses, and, and and she and she with them convinced them that she had MS and was bound to a wheelchair. Yes, yes, and and they were doing everything for her. I mean, cutting up her food, and and I just think like it'd be hard to 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 you know to to get out of character. I mean, at one point uh-huh. this this wasn't in the podcast, but at one point they were moving her think in a bathroom and they they came close to dropping her you know because mm-hmm. she and and they as they were moving her because you know she she claimed she couldn't move and and if i saw that i was about to fall on a hard tile floor like wouldn't the instinct be to hold out your arm and block your fall right. or something like that and she didn't she stayed in character she just and- stayed in character the whole the whole time she she was able to she was able to to do that and she never you know, she never slipped up uh, with any, you know, buddy who I talked to in the podcast. She was very good at maintaining her uh, her story. She could cry r- real tears spontaneously. And uh-huh. who can do that? Like actual tears, like just make herself cry real tears. So she was, you know, she was she was very she was very good at, at doing this. And she did this for some time uh, until she was eventually exposed publicly for what she was what she was doing and was that so like because she she was caught a few times like she was caught at the camp right at some point she returned and someone tipped them off that she yes. wasn't bound to wheelchair and if i understand it correctly she just stood up and walked away yeah like oh, you got me and that was yeah. it yeah, um, she did it was a, it was a devastating moment for people at the camp i mean imagine being there and they had to like make sure the other campers didn't see and how do you explain to other campers who who do use wheelchairs and need them um uh-huh. oh yeah she just walked out and uh, <laughs> yeah so so yeah i mean th- there was definite there was definite harm to uh to, to to what she did but as i said that that's that's true but it's also true that she herself had needs as well and as i say in and so how do you balance that i mean part of the reason she might never have sought help because she was recommended for help, at least I know from the time she was in college. And part of the reason that she didn't, you have to think it's because we have such a stigma surrounding anything with mental illness. And, uh, and, and, and admitting that you need help is, is, is so hard. And I didn't want to contribute to those stereotypes uh, as well. Yeah, that's a tough line to toe because there were so many so many stories, you know, she pretended to be a breast cancer survivor. And, and I guess I didn't realize, I just assumed that, that there was a monetary gain here as well, but it wasn't yeah. money. It was just, it was all about the sympathy. Like, I know, like when, when she pretended to be a breast cancer survivor, I guess she got, you know, somebody gave her a bike and, you know, paid for her to go yeah, to a I conference mean, or something. Ultimately, she was able to be held accountable through the criminal justice system because she did steal certain things that were worth money. But, uh-huh. but that was... And so she was prosecuted for those things. But I, I, even the prosecutor said he doesn't think that was 
her main goal. It was just all that they had. That's all that, that in terms of the criminal system, that's all that you can be held accountable for. That's crazy. And then, and so in 2019, after what, like 18 years of her pulling this off, is that when 2019 is when she appeared on the Dr. Phil show, right? And was I, kind of exposed. Yes, I think, I think that's right. Yeah. Sorry. I, I haven't, uh, I didn't look at the dates right before I came, but that that's sounds right. right. <laughs> well, so how did that come to be? What did, did she go to Dr. Phil under false pretenses or did she know no. she was being confronted? Yeah, no, no, no. They they knew. I mean, she agreed to go on the show. It was one of the uh-huh. you know people that she had con contacted Doctor Phil and and they were trying to get help for her because they knew uh-huh. that you know treatment for this kind of thing is very expensive. But Doctor Phil offers treatment. Like at the end of his show, if you need treatment, they'll send you to some you know to some place where you can get the help you need. And so they thought, well, she'll go on the show, she'll talk about this, and then she'll get the help uh, that she needs. And that's I. That's why I think her family encouraged her to go. So she she knew what was going to happen. It wasn't like a surprise. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't a surprise thing. She knew she was going to go on the show and uh, and 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 talk about it. And so she she did go on the show and she you know was vowing to change uh, her her ways on the show. But 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 one thing that struck me looking back at the tape is uh, you know she she goes on the show and she says she's going to stop lying. And so then uh, they interviewed her and they said, well, when did you tell your first lie? And she's like, oh, I was 25, which was itself a lie. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I had talked to, you know, you know, she started in college. And so, so that was interesting to me that even as she was saying she was going to change her life and stop lying, she was still lying. Yeah. And in her... I mean, her list of things she did, or there's there's all the illnesses, and then she would, uh, in one instance on social media, she pretended that she had to have triplets, used like other people's photos. There was like catfishing of people. There's a, there's a ton. There, this is such a deep and complex story, and I'm not even all the way through the podcast series yet. I've read about the case and I've listened to a couple episodes, uh, but it is it is very well produced. Um, the team, what was the, the production team again? Neon Hum Media. Yeah, they're, uh, they're Neon right. Hum. Hum Media has done a fantastic job of production. It's distributed by iHeart. And Laura, of course, with the writing and reporting is top notch. Her name is Laura Beal, and the podcast is called Sympathy Pains. Uh, check it out for to, to hear the, the entire story. It's an entire six-part series. It's already all published. You can binge through all of it. Uh, and it's a super, super interesting story with a lot of twists and turns. So check it out. Could be your next big true crime binge. And Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me, especially indulging me with my, my vaping fix conversation. All right. I'm happy to talk about it. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, 
please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another true crime binge.